Well, good morning, church. My name is Jordan Trahan. I serve as a pastoral assistant here at Crawford Avenue, and it is my privilege to be able to preach this morning. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 21 through 26. And this passage is one that Pastor John Piper has called the heart of Romans. In fact, he says it is the greatest passage of Scripture ever written. And so this measly, humble pastoral assistant said, that's a good passage to pick. So you can pray for me as I approach this passage. Thank goodness, thank God for his spirit, all right? So Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. This is God's word. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Amen. Let's pray real quick. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that we can gather together as believers, as your church, and study and read your word. And Lord, we thank you that you give us understanding. And Lord, we come before you asking to show us your glory in your word. For Lord, there is nothing better. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27, Jesus tells us a parable. He tells us a parable about two men who build themselves houses. One man builds his house upon the rock. And when the storms come, they beat upon his house, but the house doesn't fall, it stands. And then another man, he built his house upon sand. And when the storms came and they beat upon his house, the house fell. And great was the fall of it. And we ask ourselves, what is the difference between the two houses? The answer is that they were built on two different foundations. One was built upon a foundation that stood a foundation that was reliable, a foundation that proved to be true, while the other was built upon a foundation that was not. And so my question this morning is, what have you built your life upon? What foundation have you built your life on? Is it a foundation that will stand the storms of life, or is it a foundation That will not, a foundation that will lead to a great fall. And I want us to see this morning that that Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, is a foundation that is worthy, worthy to build your life upon. Because in it, we see the righteousness of God 
expressed through the work of Christ Jesus. And that truth has major implications for our lives. And in our text, we'll, we'll see this in, in four parts. We'll work through this text in four parts. And so first, a new righteousness. A new righteousness. Read with me verses 21 through 22. Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Now our focus this morning is going to be on that word righteousness. Righteousness, namely God's righteousness. And there are two ways that God has manifested his righteousness. First, God has manifested, he's made known his righteousness in judgment. He's made his righteousness known through the law. This is what Paul has spent the entirety of Romans up to this point proving. He's showing how God is just, he is righteous to condemn sin, to judge sinners. That is what Romans 1, verse 18 through 320 proves to us. But it is not just the law that the Jews had in written form. It's not just the Old Testament but also the law of God that was written on, that is written on the human heart. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. And so God's righteousness in judgment of sinners is justified. It is good and right. Because the law of God is written not only in our Old Testaments, but it is written on our very hearts. And we stand condemned because we have sinned against God and against his law. And so thus, thus begins our great burden. But we get to verse 21, and we read the words, But now... But now, a transition is taking place. The law that Paul speaks of was a manifestation, it was a revelation of God's righteousness to condemn. But we, we need salvation. We need something more than the law because as Paul says in verse 20, if you look right above, he says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Why? Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so this, this law, it points to the goodness. It points to the righteousness of God, the holiness of God. But it also points to our own sinfulness. You see, the law, it, what it really does is it acts like a flashlight. It, it shines upon the glory of God, magnifying the righteousness of God, but it also shines into the deepest and the darkest recesses of our own hearts, shedding light on that ugly beast of sin that has taken root. And so we see that our burden of sin grows. 
It weighs us down, and we look to the law, hoping to find something there, but the reality is is that the law cannot save us. It cannot justify us. The law simply tells us that that burden of sin is there. It amplifies the burden because we see that we simply cannot do anything. We cannot measure up to the standard of God's righteousness. And so we find ourselves in need of something new. We need something apart from the law. We need something new. We need a new kind of righteousness. Namely, we need God to manifest his righteousness, to make known his righteousness in a new and powerful way. And so Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And the point of emphasis in this verse is actually on the the last phrase, apart from the law. And what Paul is doing is he's emphasizing that this transition has indeed taken place. That God has manifested his, his righteousness in a new way. The old, the law, has made way for the new. And this righteousness has been manifested apart from the law. And so Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, it is paved, <coughs> paved <coughs> sorry. It has paved the way for this transition to take place. And this transition, but now is, is the beginning. It's the beginning of the foundation, the beginning of the gospel. And this gospel begins with the good news that that God did not leave us with the law only. But instead, he has revealed his righteousness in a new and saving way. And then that, that second part of verse 21, where he says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, Now, just as as Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 320 paved the way for this transition, so too does the Old Testament pave way for the new. You see, the Old Testament displays the glory of God and his righteousness and judgment, but it also contains glimpses of God's righteousness and salvation. Glimpses that we see in the calling of Abraham or in the liberation of Israel from Egypt or in the establishment of King David's throne and and there's many, many more glimpses of God's glory and salvation. But in all of these, they point to a greater manifestation of God's glory. And this is God's glory in salvation. It points to a period, a new age, a new age that is characterized by the grace of God. And so this old age was characterized by law, by works, by condemnation, but now this new age is characterized by grace, by salvation. And if you look there by faith, for he says in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so the righteousness that the law and the prophets that they bore witness to is the righteousness of God that is manifested in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
And Peter, Peter echoes Paul's words. He echoes them in Acts 10, verse 43, where he says to him, talking about Jesus, to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And so a new age has come. And it brings the righteousness of God to us in a new way through the person of Jesus Christ. My friends, we need to ask the question, why exactly do we need this new manifestation or revelation? And what is it? And so this leads to our second point, our need for a new righteousness. Our need for a new righteousness. Read with me, starting in verse 21 up through 23. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there is no distinction in this. There is no distinction in regard to our spiritual state. Right? There may be distinctions in our physical state. There may be distinctions in our socioeconomic state. There may be distinctions in these ways because the world loves to make distinctions. It loves to draw lines. I mean, think of who Paul is writing to. He's writing to Jewish and Gentile Christians. And according to worldly standards, those distinctions were sharp between Jews and Gentiles. And and Paul, he even spends uh, about a fourth of this book, this letter to the Romans, talking about and showing these Jewish and Gentile Christians how to get along But first, Paul has to lay a foundation. And that foundation is laid in Romans 3, 21 through 26. Because you see, Paul places all of us on common ground before the throne of God. We all have sinned, and we all fall short of God's glory. This is the summation of the human Predicament. It is the summation of Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 320. It is the summation of our great burden. A burden of sin that has crushed us to death and has left us for dead. We have sinned against our Creator. And not many have resonated with our sinful plight quite like King David. In Psalm chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, we read, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together 
they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So what does it mean that we all have sinned? Well, at its foundation, it means that our hearts have said there is no God. And such words may never leave our lips. Such words may never have filled our minds. But in our hearts, we have made a damning declaration that God is not the authority over our lives, that that God does not rule over all things, but instead, I do. We have not only believed the lie that we can become like God, but that we ourselves can be God. And so we all stand on common ground of having sinned. And we all fall short of the glory of God. Now this phrase, fall short of the glory of God, what does, what does that mean? Abstractly, and in our imagination, I mean, it's, it's pretty easy to picture, but, but practically, what does it mean? Well, it shows us that the problem of sin is much deeper than just disobedience. It has personal implications. Sin is not just an action, but it's, it's an action that has led to an identity crisis. See, our sin and all of its ugliness and as a thief has robbed us of our purpose. That which we were created for. It has robbed us of the very foundation of true and flourishing life. Because in in Genesis chapter 1, we see why God made us. We see our purpose. For in creating man, God says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Man was created in the image of God. Created after God's own likeness. Man was not created to be as glorious or even more glorious than God, but instead man was created to imitate or to be an expression of God's glory. Foundationally, our purpose is to glorify God through stewarding his creation in holiness and righteousness. But having been created in the image of God, created to express the glory of God, we exchange the glory of God for images, as Romans 1.23 says. We exchange the glory of God for idols. We exchanged it for careers. We exchanged it for money. We exchanged it for greed. We exchanged it for sex. We exchanged it for whatever our hearts desire. And in exchanging our purpose, our glorious purpose, we exchange that for a burden, a burden that weighs us down beneath our own sin. We have spit in the face of God and we have scorned his glory. That is what it means to have sinned. 
and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't mean that we, it, it doesn't just mean that we don't measure up. But in who we are and in what we do, we have defaced the glory of God. And this is why Isaiah says, he says, we all have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Not only have we sinned, but we have defaced the glorious purpose we were created for. The very glory of God. And so how great, how great this burden has become. This burden of sin that that has crushed us, has left us for dead. And we should be left asking, what are we to do to get this burden off of us? And so we arrive at our third point, the work of a new righteousness. The work of a new righteousness. Read with me verses 24 to 25. Actually, let's start at 23. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Let's stop there. My friends, the answer to the question, what are we to do? The answer is nothing. There is nothing that we can do. On our part, the situation is hopeless. At least it would be if Paul were to quit writing. But thankfully, by God's grace, Paul does not quit writing. Instead, Paul will go on for another 13 chapters. And this passage serves as the foundation for all that is to come. Because you see, in our hopeless, sinful, wretched, dead state, God has provided the miracle of righteousness. He has provided the miracle of salvation. And so in these, in these verses, 24 to 25, we're going to be guided by three words. There's three words in this passage and these verses that will be our guide. First, there is justification. Second is redemption. And third is propitiation. Justification, redemption, and propitiation. And so having sinned, having fallen short of God's glory, we stand in the eternal courtroom before the throne of God, before the great judge, when we stand condemned to death for eternity. And what we need most, what we need most is justification. This justification that Paul speaks of and this this need for justification, it it manifests itself in, in two ways. There's two ways it makes itself known in our lives. First, we can recognize our need and be moved to action. Right? This is where the works of the law comes in. We are, we're moved to action. We're moved to act. We're moved to do, to make up for the bad, for the sin that we have committed. We try to pursue righteousness. We try to do good. We try to do good to others. We try to measure our own selves up to the righteousness of God. And that's the first way. The second way that we could respond 
is to recognize our need and be moved to hopelessness, to be moved to self-loathing, to, to recognize how truly hopeless our state is and to dive deeper into our sinfulness, to dive deeper into our desires. The, the, the other way we can go is to see how hopeless we are and to pursue those things that have burdened us. And so we dive into our sinfulness. We dive into our sinful desires. We give in to temptations. We, 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 we establish the throne of the idols that we have made. And we just continue to bow the knee. Because you see, our hearts, whether we admit it or not, they long to be justified. But underneath the burden of sin, we simply cannot attain it. The, the, the burden of sin, it weighs too heavy upon us. And so what hope is there? The hope is the grace of God. Hope is that God, by his grace, has justified us as a gift and before I get too far ahead, we need to establish what it means to be justified. In its most simplest form, it means to be set right with God. It is the first act that God does to ungodly, unrighteous, worthless, burdened by sin people like you and me. It is the first step in this new and glorious act of righteousness. It is the forgiveness of sins. It is to be declared righteous. Now notice that I did not say made righteous. The, the, the process by which we are made righteous, where we are conformed to the righteousness of God, that comes later in Romans. It comes in Romans 6 through 8, which Pastor Burt preached a series on. But Romans 6 through 8 is, is built upon this foundation that we have here. Romans 3, 21 through 26 is the foundation for which Romans 6 through 8 is built upon. And it is what we first need. We need to be reminded of Romans 3, 21 through 26, because here we see how we are declared forgiven, how we are declared righteous. And you'll notice too that that word justified is a verb that is not an active verb but a passive verb. In other words, this is an action that is done to us, not by us. God in his grace and as a gift to be enjoyed for eternity has done a new work to us. And my friends, suddenly there is hope for the hopeless. But in order for God to be able to give us this gift, in order for us to receive this gift of justification, something had to happen. We are justified through an action. You'll see that prepositional phrase there in verse 24. Through. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now that word redemption, that's our second word, that word redemption, it, it takes us back to the law and to the prophets. In fact, it takes us back to the book of Exodus, 
or in chapter 6, verse 6, we read, God saying to his people, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Judgment. And so just as Israel was burdened by the Egyptians, so too we have been burdened by our own sinfulness. And just as God redeemed or freed or liberated Israel from Egypt, so too does God provide freedom, liberation, redemption from our own sinfulness. This is redemption. But in order to liberate us, God had to pay a price because in that idea of redemption, there is always a price to be paid. There is always a cost. The redemption of, of Israel cost the firstborn sons of all of Egypt. And our redemption has cost the very Son of God. And this leads us to verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And so we find our third word, propitiation. God in his righteousness has declared sinners forgiven. And he's done so through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And in Christ Jesus, God has paid the price to forgive us of our sin. And propitiation is the means by which God has done this. Because, because this word propitiation, it, it actually refers to the sacrificial work of Jesus on the cross. And so we turn the corner in this passage and we come face to face with the cross of Christ. And as we revel and as we sit in the glory of the cross, what I want to do real quick is just review where we have been. Actually, before we do that, we need to talk about this phrase, by his blood. This phrase, by his blood, emphasizes the exchange of life. It emphasizes that, that Christ has indeed given up his life, his perfect, sinless life in exchange for sinners like you and like me. That was the cost of our redemption. It is the blood, it is the life of the Son of God. And so the, the new manifestation, this new revelation of God's Saving righteousness is found at the cross, the cross of Christ. And so let us think about the cross, and while we do so, let us just review how we've gotten to this point. All of, all of humanity has, has sinned against God, their creator. We've exchanged the glory of God for images. We have exchanged the glory of God for idols. We have exchanged the very purpose that we were created for. We've thrown it away. We've trampled over it like it's trash. 
And so we find ourselves beneath the burden of sin, a burden that we have created. We find ourselves crushed to death beneath it. We find ourselves heading toward eternal punishment. This burden leaves us helpless no matter what we do. There is no work of the law that can help us. And so no matter what we do or what we aspire to, we fall short of the glory of God and we find that our burden will not budge a bit. But God, full of grace, he has given, a, he has given the gift of justification. He, has, he offers to fling our sins as far as the east is from the west, as the psalmist says. And we can now stand before the great judge. And as the accuser lists out our sins, our crimes committed against God, we can hear God say, forgiven, justified. And my friends, I hope, I hope that is good news. But my friends, I hope that you have a decent understanding of what justice is. Because upon hearing that, if you have a good understanding of what justice is, when you hear that, it should lead you to ask the question, how? If God is as righteous as you say he is, if, the, if he is as good as the Bible claims him to be, if he is as holy as we worship him to be, how can God in all of his righteousness, in all of his holiness, in all of his goodness, do something like that? How can he just say, forgiven? We have sinned against our creator. We have, we have spit in the face of his glory. How can we, how can God say that we are forgiven? And this question, it brings us to our fourth point. The effect of a new righteousness. The effect of a new righteousness. Read with me verses 25, the second part of 25 through 26. <clears throat> this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And now think with me about the story of David and Bathsheba. You see, King David, King David, who was supposed to be with his army on the battlefield, leading them to victory, David finds himself strolling around the roof of his castle. And he looks out and he sees a woman named Bathsheba. And in the heat of passion, he calls his servants and he tells them to go get her. And they go and get her because who's going to tell a king no? Who's going to withhold from a king? And so they bring Bathsheba to David. Bathsheba who is married to another man. Bathsheba who is loved by another man. Is brought to King David. And Bathsheba gets pregnant. And David, David, he tries to fix this in his own way. He, he calls Uriah back from the battlefield, calls him to his throne, and he says, Uriah, go home to your wife because David wants him to go home and be with his wife. 
so that nine months from now when the baby is born, the timeline makes sense. And so David schemes. He tries to send Uriah back to his wife. But do you know what Uriah does? Uriah sleeps at the door of the king. Because why should he, why should he go home to his wife and live in luxury while his brothers are dying and suffering on the battlefield? And David learns of this. He learns that Uriah didn't go home to his wife. And so David gives Uriah a note and sends him back to the battlefield. Uriah takes this note to the general that is there. And on this note, King David has told the general to put Uriah on the front line where the fighting is the hardest. And he tells this general to pull his troops back so that Uriah may be killed. And so it happens. David has impregnated another man's wife. He has killed or had killed that man, sent him to his death. And so Nathan comes to David and he tells David a parable of a little sheep. A little sheep that was adored and loved by its owner. But this sheep is is stolen and is killed and is eaten by another man. And David gets so angry. He's infuriated at this man, this fictional man. And Nathan says to him, you are that man. And upon hearing that, David realizes what he's done. The burden of his sin crushes him. And all he can say is, I have sinned against the Lord. And do you know what Nathan says to him next? He says to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. What? David has had his way with Bathsheba, he's killed her husband. And God responds with that. I mean, imagine the fathers and the mothers of Bathsheba and Uriah. How could God say something like that? I mean, any judge in Richmond County is going to be impeached and run out of the state if they were to say something like that. So we come to this and we're like, does God need to be impeached? And the answer, my friends, remains no. No, because instead, the fact is God has sent his son to the cross to die for such sins even as this. And at the cross, at the cross, Christ Jesus was put forward as a propitiation to not only pay for the sins of of you and me and David, but also to display the glory of God and establish his righteousness in passing over our sins. That's what Paul says. It It was to show his righteousness at the present time. 
so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what the cross has done is it it has not only justified the ones who have faith in Jesus, but it proves, it proves God to remain just. God who in all of his holiness and righteousness has, has justified us, has declared us forgiven, has flung away our sins and remembers them no more. That is the glory of the cross. And at the cross we see how a holy, righteous God is able to forgive sins. We see the means that God went to to lift this burden of sin off of our backs. My friends, we cannot lose sight of the substitutionary atoning work of Christ. Christ did not come simply just to teach or to tell us to love each other No, Christ came ultimately for this purpose. And to lose sight of this is to lose sight of life itself. And let me address one more thing. The question is, we should be asking ourselves, how do we get in on this? God has provided this gift. He's given us this gift by his grace. But it's work that is done totally external from us. The work of Christ on the cross happens externally. And so how do we get in on it? How do we take hold of it and be justified by God as Paul is talking about? And the answer is faith. Four times the word faith is repeated in this passage. Verse 22 literally says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who are having faith. And then in verse 25, we saw how Christ is received by faith in light of his propitiatory work. And then in verse 26, we see that God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God has revealed his righteousness in a new way. No longer contingent on the law, but contingent on faith. We receive this justification by faith. And so what are we to do? We do, as Paul says in Romans 10, verses 9 through 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. If we de- desire to have this burden of sin lifted upon, off of our back, there is nothing we can do. There is nothing we can do but to look to the place where God put his glory on display, to look to the cross. The cross where God declared himself to be both just and the justifier. We look to the cross and we believe. We have faith in the finished work of Jesus and we declare him Lord. And so I come back to the opening question. What is the foundation of your life? What are you building your life on? What are you building your marriage on? What are you building your family on? What are you building your friendships on? What are you building your career on? What is the foundation that all of your life is built upon? Does your life revolve around the glory of God as revealed in at the cross? 
Or is that reserved only for five hours of the week? The only foundation that will stand the storms of life is the foundation of Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. It is upon this foundation that God has made himself known in all of his righteousness. He's made himself known and he has restored the very purpose that we were created for. He's made his glory known in a new way. My friends, I beg of you to see that foundation and to build your life upon it. Let us have faith and let us lay such a foundation. Let's pray. Father, we are not worthy to stand in your presence and be declared righteous. But God, by your grace and as a gift, you do so. Lord, you offer forgiveness of sins. You offer your own righteousness through your Son. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the gospel. We praise you and thank you that you did not leave us in our sinfulness, but you have come to us and you have saved us by the work of your Son. And Lord, we ask, we ask that that, would, that, that truth would continue to go deeper and deeper into our hearts. And Lord, that we would build our life upon your glory. Lord, let your glory take root in our hearts and let it spread to our neighbors, throughout our neighborhoods, and ultimately to the nations. It's in Jesus' name we pray.